Good morning. It's Friday, the 6th of October, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes of the day Goldman Sachs takes a pause on Indian stocks even as the markets rise on falling oil prices. Indian IT companies are facing a washout year, says JP Morgan after last week's broad bullishness. More Indians are taking health insurance companies to court and winning. It's the World Cup and it's worth over 2.5 billion dollars. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Today is an important day because it's the Reserve Bank of India Credit Policy Day. It's also important because quite likely nothing will happen and there will be no change in interest rates and monetary policy. Though it would be interesting to see what the Reserve Bank says on inflation and growth, more of the former rather than the latter because inflation is what is eating into our household budgets and existence. Anyway, while we've been worrying about rising interest rates and bond yields in the United States, which of course affects the world at large, like it or not, oil prices have fallen as we spoke of yesterday too. Thanks to which, markets broke free from a two-day losing run and were back up. The BSE Sensex gained 406 points to end at 65,632 and the Nifty 50 advanced 110 points to close at 19,546. So now just to remind you on falling oil prices, it was going up because of supply cuts by Saudi Arabia and Russia. It's now going down because of the perception that demand is and will slow down. Brent crude is now below the $85 a barrel mark, a far sight now from the $100 a barrel mark everyone was worrying themselves to death over. And amazingly, US data shows that the weakest seasonal gasoline usage in 25 years is right now, according to Bloomberg. So the moral of the story is, controlling supply of anything, however short it may be in supply, can only get you that far. Now, this is obviously not to say that prices may not shoot back up, but it's not happening right now. But the rupee continues to be on a weak wicket, thanks to the strong dollar, of course, and it closed at 83 rupees 25 paise. Speaking of wickets, we have a lot on cricket coming up, including a chat with Ayaz Memon, noted writer and commentator on cricket. Back to markets. After a spate of bullish reports on India, where each report was almost trying to outdo the previous one on bullishness, Goldman Sachs now appears to be taking a pause. Global headwinds and expensive stock valuations necessitate a cautious approach towards Indian equities in the short term as the country prepares for next year's national elections, the firm said in a report quoted by Bloomberg. The sharp rally since end March, expensive valuations and global macro risks that high oil, high US rates, strong dollar, warrant a tactically conservative stance over the next three to six months, Goldman wrote in a note. Now, I'm not sure which high oil figure Goldman was thinking of because, of course, prices have crashed but it's possible that they were indeed looking at $85 per barrel of oil. Now, Bloomberg does point out that Goldman's view comes as overseas investors sold $2.3 billion worth of Indian stocks on a net basis in September following six months of inflows. So now, is the view following the selling action or is it triggering it? I'm not very sure, nor is it very clear to me again right now. But elections clearly seem to be a cause for concern to Goldman, and to be fair, they are to most other brokerages who factor in political risk into their calculations or are wary of making grand projections just before a major election. While the gauge has rallied more than 10% in the six months preceding election results in four out of seven past instances since 1996, its valuations and mid-cap stocks performance look stretched relative to prior election cycles, the Goldman analyst said. 
Yet, they said that Indian equities implied volatility is low and not pricing in any significant event risk from elections, as opinion polls suggest Mr. Narendra Modi will retain power in the centre. Show me the deals. The other demand that's expected to slow down, remember I talked about oil just a little while ago, is for services from Indian IT companies. Investment bank JP Morgan, which two weeks ago issued several bullish statements on India while its brass were visiting the country, now says this is a washout year for IT. It says it expects investors to pass upcoming second quarter results and commentary from Indian IT companies for signs of recovery in deal signings in fiscal 2025 now, thanks to this washout year. So basically, wait for the year after, forget about this one. So more specifically, they do want to see what big deals or how many of them are being announced by the IT companies before taking a meaningful call on their growth prospects. Incidentally, I'm not saying that because JP Morgan was bullish a few weeks ago, they should be this week as well. Just saying that IT sector slowdown didn't start two weeks ago. So JP Morgan says that we remain negative on the sector as we haven't seen a meaningful uptick in demand in our recent checks. We think the overall setup is not as positive as last quarter. They wrote in a note on Wednesday and reported by Business Standard. All major IT firms, including Infosys, TCS, Wipro and HCL Tech, have previously warned that clients, the majority of which are US-based, have been lowering their IT spending, delaying and even cancelling contracts as economic growth slows and on fears of higher for longer interest rates, the business standard said. Health insurance companies are being dragged to court. More individuals are going to court to fight health insurance companies who are denying their medical or hospitalization claims, either some or all of it. Moreover, the fact that people are going to consumer court is obviously an indicator of the sheer desperation, frustration and, of course, anger at being wronged or being denied the insurance, for which you've obviously paid premiums. When it comes to health, the biggest excuse from the insurance companies is obviously that there was some prior condition which you did not reveal, like, for instance, a heart problem or diabetes. But before that, an interesting article in the Economic Times by Shilpa Arora, co-founder of Insurance Samadhan, points out that thanks to the Department of Consumer Affairs taking proactive measures to resolve cases in consumer courts, the inflow of appeals has increased, doubling the number of pending cases last year. Notably, she writes, of the 5,78,061 pending cases, a staggering 1,61,000 or 161,000 cases or 27% are related to the insurance sector. The number is not mentioned here, but obviously many point to health insurance specifically within insurance rather than other forms like crop insurance. These numbers also signal a steep rise in the resoluteness of consumers to seek redressal in case of claim rejection or discrepancy with the cover amount, she says. Desperation and frustration, like I said, is more like it. So the basic problem is obviously a lack of transparency, at least in the context of health. It's very likely, and I do speak from experience, that the person who sells you the policy will not ask you all the questions you should have been asked, and even if so, will not highlight it where you could get caught out were you to face a medical emergency. Also remember, the time you need that insurance is usually when you yourself or some close member, family member perhaps, is in dire medical straits in the hospital. And that's likely when the insurance company will tell you, or more likely the hospital, to take a hike or drag its feet, which amounts to the same thing. The writer in the Economic Times says the insurance regulatory body has been asked to address these issues and focus on the lack of transparency in insurance contracts, rigid terms and conditions, claim rejections due to pre-existing diseases and tying crop insurance claim success. It's not just health, of course. 
I reached out to Jahangir Gai, well-known consumer rights activist and lawyer based in Mumbai, and I began by asking him what he was seeing in terms of such health insurance cases going to court. I'm definitely quite sure that the number of cases, particularly at the district level, would be far, far higher. The reason is that insurance companies simply do their best to reject claims, and especially more so when it comes to Medi-Claim policies, because they consider it a loss-making unit. They forget the socio-economic aspect, that in India, the policy has been formulated basically to ensure that the common man can get affordable health care. So they try to reject claims at all costs, even when they know that the rejection is wrong. I have personally experienced in the consumer courts where I've argued cases that insurance companies know they are in the wrong. The moment the case is filed, they come forward and they say that we'll settle the matter. So if you knew all along that could be settled, why did you have to wait that long? And there are in such cases where the amounts have ranged from 20,000 or so, a paltry amount comparatively, to something running into about 55, 60 lakhs also, where they've come forward and said, you forward a compensation, you forward the interest, and we will settle the matter. So they know they are in the wrong, but they still don't want to settle. And I'll tell you the objective behind this. The basic rationale is that you try to curtail the claim. Out of a thousand claims that you say wrongly reject, maybe 200 will give you legal notice. Ultimately, only 20 will file a case. So, it is still worthwhile rejecting claims. Those 20 cases where a consumer court awards the compensation, you pay up and the remaining money you just simply pocket, you know it belongs to the consumer, you know it has to be paid, but because a person has not fought for his right, the insurance company retains the money. And very unfortunately, consumer court don't have any deterrent action, like for instance, recovering the compensation from the erring official. Very rarely is that done. So the insurance companies barely continue to do this, and the moment judgment goes against them, in most cases, they pay up in few cases, they do appeal, but the amount of compensation is paid by the insurance company and not by the guilty of issue. Right. And would these pertain to any kind of illness? Because finally, insurance policies are given after having gone through what your pre-existing conditions are and so on. And both sides know that. So therefore, is it more in some areas or is it across the board? It is across the board. No matter which sector, in fact, I have found that there are certain claims where there are needless delays because of extraneous considerations, I cannot get into that. And there have been instances when you file a complaint before a claim is rejected, pointing out that the claim is being delayed, kept hanging just for extraneous consideration. And in those cases, the insurance company promptly settles the matter because they know they are in the wrong. The IRDA has prescribed a time limit for deciding whether the claim should be sanctioned or rejected. Why do they drag their feet? They drag their feet for years and months and years together. Right. And in terms of conditions, like for example, would it be more, let's say, linked to cardiac issues or is there any trend or thread that you're seeing there? I think the favorite two ailments are hypertension and diabetes. And the insurance company generally tries to, you know, somehow one way or the other manage to link something to try and say that this was a pre-existing ailment 
or the disease is related to a pre-existing condition. Whether it is right, whether it is wrong, it is immaterial. Right. So from a consumer's point of view, now, since you mentioned hypertension and diabetes, how could a consumer be better protected as they take a policy? Because everyone will eventually take a policy. Basically, I think it is a marketing gimmick where the agent fills up the proposal form and consumer, the insured, just signs on the dotted line. All these ailments are revealed. The insurance agent would not get his commission if the policy is not sold. So the entire market strategy is that they put pressure on the agent to try and get as much business as possible. The agent resorts to mis-selling very often, concealing information, what not. The number of people who are educated is not that high in our country, so people depend on agents. Those who are educated don't have the time maybe to go through everything. They simply say that you fill it up, we'll sign on the dotted line. So the policy is sold, the premium is pocketed, and then when it comes to a claim, there are various objections raised. So I think the bottom line is, make sure that you take all the precautions before issuing the policy. Once it is issued, don't come up with ridiculous objections. And as a consumer, check yourself for hypertension and diabetes before you apply for your policy. Yes, or you would naturally know about if you are suffering from that. In fact, the ideal thing I would say is to go in for a policy at a young age. That is the best. Now, I took my daughter's policy when she was six months old. So there cannot ever be any pre-existing condition unless it's congenital. Try to go for a policy at the youngest possible age and then it's not likely that the insurance company can reject the claim. So even in such cases, they try to say, X doctor is charging X amount of fees, Y the hospital is charging a certain amount of fees, why are you paying more? But then it is the patient's trust in the doctor. You go to the doctor, not because he's charging more or less, you go because of your faith in that doctor. Right, Jahangir, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome, thanks a lot. The World Cup and the $2.6 billion bonanza. World Cup cricket has kicked off in India yesterday in Ahmedabad. And just like we were discussing Taylor Swift economics a few weeks ago, now we are talking World Cup economics. Bank of Baroda research says that there will be a boost of anywhere between 18,000 to 20,000 crore rupees or more than $2 billion on gross output, mostly in the services sector, with the hospitality sector benefiting the most. This is already evident from the fact that even if you somehow found a ticket to watch a one-day match in, let's say, Ahmedabad, you will have to sleep on the pavement, particularly if you're coming from out of town. One analysis says average hotel rooms during the match days are up 150% from previous weeks, while flight fares are up 80%. But all hotel rooms are booked out too. And don't even talk about the India-Pakistan match. Maybe you can buy a larger screen TV and thus boost the non-services side of the economy too. Bank of Baroda has computed that at least 2.5 million people will watch the series at 10 venues over 45 days with 48 matches between 10 teams. In case you want me to repeat that, Bank of Baroda has computed that 2.5 million people will watch the series at 10 venues over 45 days with 48 matches between 10 teams. So that's 45 days starting yesterday. Of course, millions will watch from home. So how does that 20,000 crore or so break down? 
Bank of Baroda says ticket sales would be between 1,600 to 2,200 crores, TV rights and sponsorship around 10,500 to 12,000 crores, screenings and food delivery around 4,000 crore rupees, and several other categories like team spending, foreign and domestic tourists, merchandise, and spectator expenses in several hundreds of crores each. Event management and gig workers or volunteers, including security, are budgeted at between 750 to 1,000 crore rupees. It's interesting that while we're talking about cricket right now, which is, of course, a grand spectacle across the country, there are many other events which you could sort of compute in a more micro way as well and then try and understand the services contribution. Bank of Baroda says that the last Cricket Cup in 2019 in England contributed handsomely to the UK's GDP and therefore India should benefit similarly. Of course, the match season ties in with the festival season, which seems to be off to a good start, at least in some sectors. So overall consumption spends, particularly on the affluent end of the market, should be high. The only flip side BOB acknowledges is inflation because of all the price jumps in airline tickets, hotel accommodation, though these would mostly be limited to the 10 cities in October and November. There are some figures floating around on both inflation and economic growth, but I feel they are a little small to specifically tout because the larger point of the big spending hike is well taken. Speaking of sold-out hotel rooms and sky-high airfares, fund manager Saurabh Mukherjee along with his colleague Nandita Rajhansa of Marcellus have coined the term the octopus class to analyse or understand the rise of this affluent class in India. Mukherjee says that what is astonishing is the fact that in spite of the World Cup cricket ticket prices, every ticket that I've heard of is gone and this goes to show how wealthy a certain section of Indian society has become. According to both Mukherjee and Rajhansa, the octopus class comprises nearly 200,000 families across India in small towns as well as big cities or nearly 10 million people who control nearly 80% of India's wealth. Mukherjee has done an interesting deep dive into the composition of this octopus class who will obviously be or most of them will be watching these matches but that's for another day. And finally, stocks primed for the World Cup have spiked leading up to the 45-day event start. Bloomberg has pointed out saying its Bloomberg index of stocks that are set to benefit from the tournament has gained about 20% already in the last three months. Stocks related to food delivery, alcohol beverages, travel and other consumer sectors including Zomato, United Spirits and Indian Hotels, that's the Taj Group, will continue to see positive impact from the quadrennial event stockbroker Jefferies said in a note on Wednesday. The stock of restaurant brands Asia owner of the Burger King franchise rose yesterday as did several media companies. Indian Hotels once again which runs Taj, Chalet Hotels and Interglobe Aviation owner of Indigo all went up on the bosses. Now, to get a sense on how things are looking on the pitch as the matches kick off, I reached out to Ayaz Memon, well-known cricket and sports writer, as well as commentator right now for the Asia Cup. And I began by asking him what he was specifically watching out for this World Cup. I think, Gohan, this is very crucial. You know, the future of ODI cricket, that is 50-over cricket, has been in doubt for some time. Especially after T20 has, you know, kind of become so invasive and T20 leagues proliferating all over the world. So, one is, of course finding spectators who are still interested in the 50-over game because to watch white ball, coloured clothing, cricket, they can migrate to T20. It takes lesser time. It's, in a sense, more exciting because every ball makes a difference. And there is a window in the itinerary to accommodate ODI matches when you've got T20, which is being played everywhere almost around the year, and then you've got this very coveted desire to keep Test cricket alive. So, in between these two formats, ODI cricket was getting squeezed out. Now, there is the hope that World Cup coming to India 
might see a revival of ODI cricket because India is, of course, the mecca and the El Dorado of cricket. And if spectators don't come to watch the matches here or sponsors don't back the sport here, where will it happen? So, the previous World Cups have been very exciting, very good, successful. But I think this one is a, is a key tournament. And what's your sense on the kind of response we've seen in terms of advertisers and even, for example, ticket sales and so on? I mean, in anticipation. These are two separate issues, but I'm just responding from what I've read in the business papers. They've got enough sponsors for the tournament. See, this is an ICC tournament. It's not a BCCI tournament. So, BCCI is only the host. India is the host country. From what I gather is that the inventory for advertising for the broadcasters is pretty flush, you know, especially for India matches. So, I think that pattern, I think, is very clear. It's a 10-team tournament. India will play nine matches. So, all those nine matches in terms of sponsorship and inventory for, for that day or, you know, when India is playing for the broadcasters, is overflowing. And also ticket sales for those matches. I mean, we all know India versus Pakistan is the marquee match. It's going to happen in Ahmedabad on October 14th. And you can't get a ticket for love or life. Forget about ticket. You can't get hotel rooms. You can't get aeroplane tickets and so on and so forth. And yet, India is playing only nine matches. There are other 39 matches that are also going to be played in different parts of the country. What's happening there? The first match... You know, yesterday, opening match, England versus New Zealand. I was surprised actually to see balance stands. Huge amounts of space in the stadium not filled up. It took me by surprise because England is a very entertaining team. New Zealand, a very competitive side. This is a marquee match also in its own way between the two finalists of 2019. And to find so few spectators was a little alarming but distressing. Right. And maybe that goes back to the first point you made that it's ODI is also surviving for a place in the cricketing lineup. Yes. I mean, that's true. It's a whole day. You know, it's not T20. You go in in the evening, watch for three hours and go home. You have to pencil out a whole day. But I think in the promotion, in the propagation of the tournament and ODI cricket and the World Cup especially, I mean, why is it that 2019 the tournament was played in England or 2015 in Australia? Most matches saw substantial turnout, spectator turnout. So either there's apathy amongst Indian fans, they will watch only India matches and not the others, which is not such a happy thought. I'm hoping that we have spectators watching the other matches also. Right. And Ayaz, I'm sure I'm going to come back to you on this in coming episodes as well. But at this point of time, what are the two or three teams that you're really looking out for? India, I think, tops my list because not just because they're playing at home, it's a very, very strong team. They've got the balance right, the combination right. Playing at home has its own advantages. The only kind of something they need to guard against is that previous two World Cups also, they reached the semi-finals and got knocked out. In fact, we haven't won anything that the ICC puts up in a multi-nation tournament format since 2013. So, while we are the, the biggest cricketing nation and in terms of talent, perhaps the most flush, it's not translating into titles. So, that's something they need to, you know, can, that bridge they have to cross. The other teams which catch my fancy, England, They've changed the flavor of how cricket is played across formats in the last two, three years. So we'll have to wait and see. I mean, it's a slightly maverick approach, but it seems to have worked for them. Australia, who won the World Cup the most number of times, they should be in the semi-finals. Well, four or five weeks before the tournament, if you had asked me, the fourth team in the semi-finals, I would have said, certainly Pakistan. You know, very familiar with the conditions, subcontinent conditions, looked a very solid team. But since the Asia Cup, last two, three weeks haven't gone well for them. They look a little bit in disarray. Injuries to some players, just kind of losing the Asia Cup so badly, not faring well in the warm-up matches. 
it looks a side which is vulnerable so maybe some of the dark horses in my opinion are south africa not much to lose everything to gain and i will come back to you i ask perhaps just as we are stepping into the semi finals where it gets really heated up thank you so much for joining me thanks govin catch up and do check out our original podcast series front foot where ias talks about matches from previous world cups and the lessons in management we can take away from the indian team's many successes and failures the link is in the description well that's it from me for now i hope you have a great world cup series and a weekend do log on to www.thecore.in subscribe to our newsletter listen to our podcast and of course do send in your feedback to our mail id's mentioned below Have a great day and weekend. This was the core report with me Govind Raj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core dot in. Thank you for listening.